Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a very funny comedian who wrote for Comedy Central's Robbie. Maybe you saw her on All Male Panel or heard her on podcasts like Doughboy's Hollywood Handbook and Big Grande's Teacher's Lounge. Please welcome Mary Sasson. Hello. Thank you for letting me be on this podcast. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror, where it started, if you've been a fan for a long time, or if it's something newer? Sure, yeah. I think the first horror movie I can kind of remember watching was probably Candyman, the original. Mm, yeah. um, and I don't even know if it scared me as much as much it really scared my older sister. So in some ways, it made <laughs> me feel like then it has to be very scary. <laughs> Otherwise, I think that just kind of like... I would say I definitely jump in and out of the horror genre. I think I got a little bit more into it. I used to live with two roommates, Mono Gappian and Betsy Sodaro, and they are very into horror. And through that, I think I watched more. Sure. <laughs> yeah, they're, those are two who will definitely uh, get you watching some for sure. Yeah. Do you have a favorite subgenre, something that makes you more likely to enjoy a movie? Gosh, I think psychological tinge to something. Mm. I think that is more scary to me maybe than just monster. But also, I, I like things that I guess I'm saying is like, you don't see who's doing what. Sure, it keeps you guessing. Yeah, I think like the strangers for so long not seeing who was attacking them. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of times I feel like once you see who did it or who's doing it, you're a little bit like, oh, my imagination's <laughs> better at making this scary than you are. Right. Yeah. You say, yeah, well, they should have, they should have had me writing this. I would have done it better. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like what you could imagine, like the monster could be like, to yeah. me, always feels so much crazy. And then they show it and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, it's just a guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that totally fits in with today's movie. The movie we're talking about is 2014's The Babadook, written and directed by Jennifer Kent. Do you remember the first time you watched this movie? If it was an immediate hit for you? I think I probably did watch it with my old roommates in my old house. And I do remember it. It's it's just this, a very fun kind of spooky. And not in rewatching, it's not like a traditional. It's like a slow build where you are kind of like, what is this going to be? Yeah. And I would argue that, and not that we don't need to get this right yet, but th this scary thing, they do a good job of like showing you it a little bit, but not really. Yeah, and I think that she develops the, the scares in a very interesting way. And I think that part of that has to do with the fact that she didn't go to film school. So she has kind of this outsider view. Oh, interesting. She instead worked as a, quote, attachment on Lars von Trier's Dogville and said, quote, it's like an apprentice. I was part of the directorial department. and I did a lot of shit kicker jobs short of shoveling snow in Sweden. But what I got in return was the opportunity to see Lars at work in pre-production and production. I had my film school compressed into three and a half months. And it's such a rewarding thing to do because I learned to follow a vision. I wanted to learn in an apprenticeship way because I don't see myself as a usual filmmaker. My ideas are a bit peculiar and left of center, so I needed to see someone in action who I felt was the same. I learned a lot from watching his process. He's kind of renowned as being this asshole to his actors, but I thought that he really liberated them and gave them support and freedom. And I think you can see how that goes into this. You know, she was already friends with Etsy Davis, who played Amelia, and she was a little concerned about that relationship because she was like, I need to be running the show. But it worked out really well because she she's an actor who did respond well to direction. And we see how strong this performance comes across. And I think that you don't get that kind of performance without having a lot of trust in both directions from the director and the actor. Yeah, especially since there's like, it's a very small cast. So you're having so much of Essie on screen. Yes. 
that there's a lot to do. And she definitely goes through the gamut <laughs> emotionally. So yeah, I do think you need like, it's funny sometimes I feel like they talk about Lars von Trier, that like sometimes like you have to be a monster to your, uh, especially it feels like in horror movies, like a monster to your actors for them to act correctly. But it's like, <laughs> or they could act. <laughs> or you just yeah, like, that's it's called acting. Yeah, like I don't necessarily think that, um, what's his name? The guy who did The Shining. Oh, Kubrick. Kubrick, yeah, had to just make, I'm so bad with names, that uh, black-haired actress crazy. Is that Shelley Duvall? Yeah, Shelley Duvall. Yes. Um, her insane. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so a thousand takes over. and screaming at her. I agree. I, I'm sure that's somewhere in those takes <laughs> earlier. There was one that would have worked okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I was like, just pretend like you're agitated. We don't actually have to work someone up. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. But so Kent wrote this initial draft of the screenplay, and in 2009 she earned a spot at the prestigious Finger Film Lab in Amsterdam, where she was encouraged to take big swings. She said, Amsterdam has a history of fostering unique visions, and I really wanted to follow my instincts on this. Sometimes working in Australia things tend to be done by the book. And one of the things that Binger does as a distinguishing point from other film labs, which she did laud as part of the process, was the way actors and and the writers put their scenes and stories through a series of improvisations and workshops to more fully find the meaning and the tone of the story. So using sort of the performances of it to see what what is strong about it and what's weak about it and letting people sort of develop it naturally, I think is really interesting in terms of a writing style. Yeah, definitely. That feels almost like a second city model of like coming up with like a sketch by just like improvising it a bunch and kind of like, well, what if we tweak it here kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. And this clash of styles led to the Australian national and state funding bodies passing on the Babadook as a feature length movie. And there were some international funders who were willing to, to work with them if they changed the ending to something more traditional. But Kent said she didn't want to compromise. They wanted the monster to just get killed and they all live happily ever after <laughs> basically so what's the, what she did was she conceptualized a short that could help her sell the feature titled monster although she did refer to it as baby baba duck as well although she missed <laughs> baby duck <was> right there <laughs> It is a pretty cool short. It was filmed in this grainy black and white to mimic an expressionist silent movie, which obviously gets referenced a lot in the, the Babadook proper. Also, the Babadook starts as a plush and morphs becoming more human and real instead of starting from the book, which is, you know, it was interesting. interesting. I, I think it, it works as like a nice 10 minute short as well. There's enough differences that uh, keep it fresh. And, and yeah, it's, a, it's, it's just a lot of the same kind of scary feeling. So I recommend it to people who enjoyed this. Yeah, there's a lot of it feels like it, it must be a common thing to do like a short to develop into a longer one because this isn't like the orphanage maybe is short there's, or the orphan. It feels like a lot of other ones I've seen. I yeah, guess. Saw was as well uh, started as a short, and then uh, and then they developed that into a full one. And I mean, it definitely helps to have some sort of demonstrated interest. You know, this it worked pretty well for this. It screened at over fifty festivals. People did enjoy it, and basically, when they saw that people were l enjoying this concept, the Australian funding bodies reconsidered their support and were like, "All right, we'll give you a two million dollar budget." So it worked out all right. Yeah, that's also, it reminds me of just kind of like, and maybe there's things in the US, but I know that like, I think Taika Waititi was talking about how like New Zealand is big on kind of like, yeah, let's give you money to make 
films and things like that. And it's like, it doesn't feel like that happens in the US. <laughs> no, definitely not. You know, it's funny too. Like when we talked about Videodrome, those David Cronenberg movies are like funded by Canada and they're controversial movies. Like yeah. people get upset about the sex and violence in them. And the idea of Canada or like any government funding something that is like that yeah. controversial is like, I mean, I'm like, damn, we, we should have that. <laughs> yeah. Especially for when, if it could fund like newer people. Yeah. Yeah, and, and or people from just kind of women or minorities or anything like that to just kind of let Definitely. more people have a chance to make stuff. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, just giving people an opportunity to use their voices uh, it would definitely be extremely helpful to finding just so many new perspectives and everything. We've seen as things have started to, to shift, uh, uh, you know, obviously there's a long way to go, but even just the, the influx of great new filmmakers that we've gotten has been so refreshing instead of just having the same, same couple guys getting jobs over and over no, again. For sure. And I think it's especially like you've seen there's been a lot of like after, not necessarily from, I guess Snowpiercer and then Parasite that like kind of like Korean filmmaking and just, I think it opens up the world of kind of like, whoa, those are movies that like almost feels like, I don't know, a movie could be like that, which I think yeah. is just really like, opens up the mind because sometimes it feels like oh all american movies are can be so similar sometimes definitely they get they get sort of siloed into their genre and because korean cinema they have a like a very new hollywood because of the the military dictatorship that they had for so long there there was not really a lot of uh, free expression in in the film industry for them and so a lot of Korean filmmakers sort of grew up on a diet of American and European films and just sort of took all of that in. And because it's so new, they were like, oh, well, we there's nothing that says we can't just put all of these genres into one stew here. Yeah. And and that's why movies like Parasite are funny and scary and there's action and, and thrills and drama. It is refreshing because they're like, there's nothing that says no. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's also the same way, you know, starting this conversation of just this director who kind of didn't go to film school. So she's like, well, I don't know the rules. So it's so much easier for me to, quote unquote, break them. Exactly. It's also, this movie is interesting because it was one of the first bigger movies to use Kickstarter to sort of supplement the budget and everything. They had the two million from Australia, but as things were wrapping up, they were like, in order to get it actually like just perfect, we need like 30,000 more dollars. And so they used Kickstarter. It was a success. Um, and they were pretty early to this. The only like similarly sized movie that I could find was Blue Ruin, which was 2013, but... I mean, I think it's great to understand the power of like reaching out to people who are interested in it and, and using that to get your movie made. It's come too. I think that like, obviously, I'm glad they got the extra 30,000. But in some ways, thinking about this being lower budget, it's always interesting what things you can do in horror and how things look. Yeah, absolutely. And in the Kickstarter, she actually talked about some of those influences on the visual style and everything. She specifically calls out the work of George Millies and Todd Browning, plus the early gothic movies of Polanski alongside more modern ones like The Orphanage and Let the Right One In as a way to draw a line between the splashy horror that was popular contemporaneously and what she was accomplishing. And she said, quote, these films are about bringing the inside out, i.e. externalizing the emotions of a character and placing those emotions physically into their surroundings through lighting, camera and design. We're excited to find our own modern interpretation of expressionism for the Babadook. And I think that they did such a great job of sort of bringing that historical style into the present day. I think it looks so fantastic and does capture 
a lot of the style of these expressionist movies, but also still, it feels like a modern movie. It doesn't feel stodgy or like it's doing that to the detriment of the movie. It fits in with it in a way that feels like it's completing the puzzle. Yeah, I love that. Of It very much does that of like bringing the ex- the internal feelings externally and showing you that. Like I feel like that's like the crux of everything of this movie and they they do that so well, even with like the the like color and like the warmth or lack thereof rather yeah, <laughs> and right. everything. Yeah, it's dingy blue. Yeah. It made me really be like, I didn't know Australia looked like this. <laughs> like I was like, I, I guess it's very silly. Australia is a huge country, but I was just like, <laughs> Australia is always pictured as like beachy and like sunny and, you know, bright. And it felt very like English countryside dreary exactly and and that was something that she was definitely going for she said i didn't want it to be particularly australian i wanted to create a myth in a domestic setting and even though it happened to be in some strange suburb in australia it could have been anywhere and to do this she does distinguish it from other australian gothic movies like long weekend wolf creek picnic at hanging rock and evil angels because those tend to have more of like the landscape as an indicator of the malevolence sort of looming over the characters And instead, this leans more into European Gothic influence, where it's more about the interiority. It's a Victorian house where the terror takes place in. You have this hallucinogenic, dreamlike state. It's more about making you feel claustrophobic and like the walls are are trapping you, basically. Yeah, definitely. I think also, maybe this isn't the time, but just thinking about, I guess I didn't realize the director was also a woman, but they she did such a really good job. And so to me, it's like, oh, of course. Of making you feel like this is what the type of horror of being a mother, a single mother, yeah. is like. You know what I mean? Like everything just felt so real. It's a, a lived-in experience instead of just someone trying to capture something. Yeah, I just had a son five months ago, so this watching this the, this time around was just like, oh, oh my goodness. This <laughs> <laughs> is so... It just was obviously like... There was one moment where my son had gone to sleep and he was like on the monitor in front of me and he started crying and i wasn't sure if it was in the movie or not oh man (laughs) i was like oh my god that's him that's scary yeah it was because i like sometimes i just i like watching horror movies like in the complete dark like i think that just gives a lot more of like the mood and it was just like to hear just a baby crying in this movie i was like oh no She did get a lot of questions about starting in horror, and she said, I think there's a snobbery towards films that are frightening, and I don't know why that is. It's an emotion as valid as any other to explore in film, but it immediately gets labeled as genre. It's a curious thing to me. I'm sure Polanski didn't say, now I've made Rosemary's Baby and The Tenant, and now I can go make some serious films. And I never felt that because this is a serious film. For me, it runs deep, and I wanted to explore the issues in it authentically. I think that's speaking to exactly what you're talking about, you know, that authenticity, the way that it feels like this is something that she's speaking to from real life, you know, even though it is fantastical. It, it does have that edge of sincerity. Yeah, and I think, too, because there was such a slow build that almost for a second I was kind of like, this is a horror movie, right? Like, <laughs> in some ways, like, the first horror of it is just, like, just sitting in that... It's more than awkwardness, but just, like, that, like, fog. You just could Definitely. feel the, like, heaviness of this woman's... Sorry, my dog. (laughs) Of this woman's just like, before you even, I guess you kind of realize immediately like her husband died before you really like get that just of like how hard her and tiring her life is. Yes. Exhausting. Yeah. that So that it's just like, and then you get like the supernatural element. But at first it was just like, man, even if that doesn't come. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's a different kind enough. of horror movie. <laughs> Just being with a six-year-old son who keeps getting in trouble and you don't have help and you've got kind of like a, a wage job and things like that. It's like, Definitely. Jesus, even this will make me. <laughs> <laughs> Very stressful. So this movie falls into a, quote, bad mother subset of gothic ghost stories like The Orphanage, like the others, even the Silent Hill movie adaptation. They maintain these gothic elements like a heroine's relationship to a stifling domestic space and the weight of the past on the present. But they also do approach these uh, inadmissible feelings about motherhood. And, And Jennifer Kent said... Apart from we need to talk about Kevin, I can't easily think of other examples that address maternal ambivalence, and it's the great unspoken thing. We're all, as women, educated and conditioned to think that motherhood is an easy thing that just happens, but it's not always the case. Yeah, no, again, just having like a, a son, I think that the, one, I think like the the build of just kind of like, she's not a bad mom, but she's, you know, working through it. Two, like obviously like, almost stabbing <laughs> her son. But again, I thought that it was like, uh, this is a completely different thing, but I remember watching the beginning of Bad Moms one time. Mm. And I had like, sometimes I feel like I have an uncanny ability to be like, this was not written by a woman. <laughs> <laughs> and like watching Bad Moms, I was just like, oh, these, this is definitely a man writing about what they think a bad mom would be. And there just was like a tinge of inauthenticity of like, oh, that's not how a mom would be bad. Those aren't the things yeah. that mom wouldn't like care about. But this was just like, and even I've like nannied older kids where you just get to the point where you're like, I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to be good. God, you're pushing me in all the wrong ways. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love you. I will not do this. And then even that poor kid turning of how he was like, which what a great actor he was. Mm-hmm. But that he got to the maturity to be like, I need to save mom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's kind of interesting because this sort of conditioning uh, to to like have motherhood, the ease that you find it defines you as a good mother kind of thing. This is reflected in movies as well. You know, in the late 60s and 70s, children in movies like Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, The Omen, The Brood, they were kind of this like scary other. Yeah. And then as horror kids changed from a terror into more like precocious tykes <sighs> with special insights, you know, like uh, like The Sixth Sense and, and uh, The Shining, like you said, the Babadook kind of embodies this whole timeline because... Samuel starts as a terror. Yeah. But then, like you said, as Amelia spirals, he sort of becomes the wise innocent. And he's like, oh, I realized, like, I need to try and save my mother here. Yeah. Even thinking of, in some ways, just like, oh, isn't he such a terror? But then as you, like, look back over the whole thing and you are kind of like, like you said, this ambivalence she had for him, that it's like, yeah. Is he such a terror or is he just in some ways doing the best with what he has? <laughs> right. It's And it's so subjective too, you know. Uh, we're seeing this whole movie through her eyes and we're meant to feel like he's a terror. But when, when we see them in the restaurant towards the later end and they're just like both sitting there quietly, he's drinking a soda and it's ca- like contrasted with the other group of kids who are all like climbing over the seats and everything. And you're like, oh, this kind of feels like a look – maybe into a more real world like this is he, he they are both just exhausted perhaps but also like maybe there's a little bit of exaggeration that's coming through the film yeah i think even if you like we we set up of like auntie carol is that her name Claire, Auntie Claire. Um, Claire, yes. That, Claire. Uh, she's so normal and she has this daughter who's so perfect but then you see in the treehouse that he's just kind of like 
leave me alone. <laughs> and yeah, she yeah, is she's a huge bully. Yeah, she's <laughs> obviously then like from what you know you see from the outside, he pushes her out of a treehouse, and you think like, oh my god, he's done it again. But again, yeah, went inside the treehouse. It's like this kid's just doing the best he can. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting because Amelia does kind of reflect the other end of the scale where, you know, there's this notion filmically that the quote unquote good mother is defined by self-sacrifice and selflessness, while the quote unquote bad mother is a little more multifaceted and even contradictory because it can be something like a fanatical devotee to the institution of motherhood like Carrie's mom or someone who rejects the traditional expectation of devotion. And so this works with typical melodramas, which tend to be about reconciling our protagonists' maternal and sexual identities with the quote unquote good mother rejecting romance for the sake of the kid. And when the movie starts, Amelia does fit pretty squarely into quote-unquote good mom territory. You know, she's dealing passively with a troubled, attention-seeking child, you know, because she is having a tough time. She's not giving him attention. And But not only has she sacrificed her time and comfort, but also essentially sacrificed her husband to him. And so Samuel supplants Oscar's place in her life and also in more traditional gothic stories like Rebecca, where the protagonist is suspicious of their husband. Now it's more about having this this child in her life that, that feels like a prison. You know, it, it just makes it kind of a twist on not only what films think a good mother is, not only what films think a bad mother is, but even traditional gothic stories it's really subverting a lot of expectations while still feeling like a natural evolution of those movies. Yeah, even thinking like with all those themes of when she's in the basement and Oscar's like, if you give me him, you can have me back. Right. Kind of thing. That it is like, oh, she's not going to trade him to her husband, although she feels like very tempted to. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think it does in some ways, in a lot of ways, kind of like, what is the good mother kind of thing? And what does a good mother demand from us? And, you know, where can you be doing seemingly all the right things and failing and how do you really succeed in being a good mother and the house kind of literalizes her hidden trauma through its forbidden spaces like the basement full of oscar's stuff which does tie into the gothic concept of a past preserved and awaiting reanimation but these repressed emotions at Amelia's situation are the concealed horror in the movie like you said it starts out so mild but then it bubbles to the surface while these themes intensify, the gothic conventions, the shadows, the angles, they all get more intense as we see more and more the manifestation of her troubles. Yeah, it feels like this could have gone the Damien route where it's like, oh, the horror is having this child. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think that as it goes through it, I think that that book is so interesting that they read and how the son is finally like, you let it in, you like, you let it in and that's how this is happening. Kent said that aligning us with Amelia's perspective was vital. Uh, quote, even when she goes to some really dark places, I still tried to keep it within her point of view as much as possible so that people wouldn't sit back with their arms folded and judge her, but they'd actually travel through that experience with her. And I think, again, that she does such an amazing job here. Credit also to the performance, because the fact that at the end, you still are like able to get back on the kid's side and not just be like, ultimately, I want this to, to win. Because, you know, when he's screaming there and like in the backseat and kicking the, the chair and everything, and it just cuts to her like dead eyed and you're just like, oh, I'm so on her side. Like, I feel her pain. This is agonizing. But you don't judge her that much because you're like. 
I, I, I see her trying. I see the challenges. It, it is so intrinsically tied to her perspective. Without it, I don't know that the movie works as well. Yeah, to me, some of like the best writing, and conversely, I think the worst writing is when I was like, you brought me to a place I don't think you earned. And I think that this brought us both to the place of like, whoa, we like the sun. We now see where the sun's coming from. And the mom strangled their dog. <laughs> and we're still on her side at the end of the movie. Like, we don't, I don't think we like that she strangled the dog. <laughs> but what a, like, a roller coaster of, like, two paths that crossed and, you know, looped or whatever it is, where you're kind of like, now I'm on this kid's side. And <laughs> but also even with that, like you said, probably because of her perspective and the way that it was so trippy is just kind of like, I don't know what's real and what's not real. And I'm getting a sense that she's lost her mind, but it's not necessary. It's not her. It's her doing it, but it's not her doing. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. You know, they, they do it not only through the performance, but also through the atmosphere and the sense of time unraveling, you know, as well. There's a lot of really cool sort of time lapses and jitters and stuff. They do such a great job of making things feel off balance all the time. And so when when everybody is just trying to like grab hold of stuff to steady themselves, yeah. you're, it feels very relatable. Even something I always think is very interesting is when they'll give you a mark of time. Like there was one moment they're like, well, he only hasn't been in school for two days. And I was like, this has been yeah. two days. Right. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Brutal. Yeah. Like that just reminds me, too, of like, I think that my first review of motherhood is that like the hardest thing is it's all the time. Mm -hmm. No breaks. <laughs> There's no breaks except when they go to sleep. And in this movie, what they've shown so perfectly is like she can't get that sleep. He doesn't give her that sleep. He doesn't even give her that break, you know? Right. Yeah. Ugh. We see like one of the first scenes when he's like digging into her neck and like you hear his jaw grinding and things like that. Oh, it's like it's so high in the mix and he's just grinding away. Yeah, just seeing that. I think that we like as a, maybe, who knows exactly why, but like maybe because we only get one set of teeth, but I feel like we're all very sensitive to teeth. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But yeah, I think that again, watching it, I was just like, oh God. This is so stressful. Yeah. She has this problem child that she doesn't even get to escape from during sleep. Wow. Yeah. The insomnia that her son is facing, you know, it's definitely a challenge. And it, it was a limited cast. Like you said, it's mostly just Essie Davis and Noah Wiseman as her son, Sam. They didn't do a script reading because he was so young. So instead, Kent and company just spent a lot of time together playing games and whatnot to create sort of a familiarity. And it released in the U.S. November 28th, 2014, faring better here than in Australia and eventually making over $10 million at the box office, receiving positive views, and even seeing the Babadook become an LGBTQ plus <laughs> icon. <laughs> Yeah, that's so funny that, like, that turn happened. But also, funny that they released it November 28th. Yeah. I was just reading Late. yeah, reading a thing about how, like, one of the reasons they think bros might not have done well is because they released it during, like, the holiday season when, like, horror movies are... Yeah. When you release movies is always very interesting to me, like, when you can hide them and things like that. Right. But November 28th, I guess maybe they won to get, like, Thanksgiving crowd, but I don't know. Yeah, and, and you know, I wonder, because it's interesting, too, because an ordinarily a movie releases that late, and you're like, oh, they're going to be in theaters, like, through Christmas and New Year's, but for a, for a smaller movie like this, you wonder if it's going to stay in theaters that long, or yeah. if it's going to be more of a shorter run. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Also, and I'm not 100% sure of this, I feel like later in the year, too, is when you put, like, Oscar movies 
that you want. Yeah, you want a fresh top of mind when they start, <laughs> All <those laughs> start voting in the beginning of the year. Yeah. yeah. So that's interesting. And also interesting that it didn't do as well in Australia. I wonder what that could mean. Maybe like she said, they were they were doing it by the book. They didn't like her rule breaking. Yeah. They all <laughs> ran out and they said, Why didn't the Babadook die? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into the actual movie. It starts with the nightmare of a car crash, literally a nightmare, and it does become dreamlike, but at first you can't tell. And I love that they start this so early, creates a difficulty through the movie in distinguishing for sure which is which. The atmosphere throughout is playing with just that. And for them to start it even before the issues start arising, I think is just so perfect. Yeah. Do you think, speaking of that car accident, obviously we're told it's like grisly. Do you know in that one scene in the basement, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, that he gets like sliced in half? Do you think that that's what happened to him? Oh, man. I... I kind of do think that his head got, got like, like, he like, like, like I don't know yeah. if you can say decapitated. It's like yeah. bicapitated. Oh. <laughs> it's really it's grisly for sure. Feels like a like a Fulci thing, which <laughs> like, like, a Fulci would be like, yeah, slice his head in half with a glass. <laughs> but Amelia is woken up by her son Samuel, who has had quote the dream again, and it's clearly a hassle for her to go through the motions, but she does it. She looks under the bed and in the bureau. She reads him the book twice, but she just looks dead inside. Even as Samuel's screaming about smashing the head of the monster, in, she's just like, okay. <laughs> And he falls asleep. Like you said, we get these close-up shots to just really show how smothered she feels. The leg flung over her. Her hand, His hand is like clutching her neck. And she foreshadows this attempt to escape him more dramatically by disentangling herself and shifting to the edge of the bed. Her back is to him. There's a huge gulf between them, literally and figuratively. Again, just the way that the, these things are being set up so early, it's communicated in a way that's clear but not overbearing. Yeah. I, I think it's just such a great job. Yeah, like immediately we're like, okay, we get this relationship, we get what's going on here. She's not a bad mom, she is going through the motions, but she is an overwhelmed mom, and we we get why. <laughs> yeah, and the next morning we see him like fucking around with a weapon that he made to fight the monster, while she ignores the alarm until there's some crashing and another crash, and she leaps from the bed, and... I don't have kids, but I do have animals in the house, so I am very familiar with that. Eyes fly open at the first one, and you just pray there's no more noise. Look, you're just like, just let me get to it in a couple minutes, and then they're just still, still breaking stuff. Yeah, I will say the one only unrealistic thing about this movie is those crazy like machines he made. <laughs> he's he's a, a smart one, I guess. <laughs> In the aftermath, we learn that he has a fascination with magic, and we see a Thurston the Great Magician poster, which is, uh, he's a real guy. The poster asks, do the spirits come back? And this was something that he frequently attempted to facilitate. So that's, you know, that's fun. And also the Magic Man outfit on Sam, kind of Babadook-esque. Oh, yeah, very much so, yeah. Samuel produces a magic bouquet for his mother and then strokes her face and gives her a hug. And our first real emotion from her is this like repulsion as Amelia pushes him away. <laughs> and she drops him off at school, completely ignores the question of what's clanking around in your bag, which really made me laugh. <laughs> I think I missed <laughs> like, that. <laughs> She heads to work at an assisted living facility, which is very drab, and her work in the dementia ward means that she has to kind of put on the same kids' gloves, you know, let things roll off her back, and things just 
pile up. You know, she has to remake the coffee. Here comes Robbie with a sexist comment. Here comes a phone call from the school calling her in. You're like, it's not just that she has a son who is who is rambunctious. It's that everything in her life feels like it's pulling her down. Yeah, everything feels like this, like, she's got this, I, I don't want to say wet blanket, but, like, she's got this, like, heaviness over her. Yes. It's perfect also, like, hair and makeup. Yeah, yeah she looks frazzled. <laughs> she looks so frazzled. She really looks like every time, and her, her face just does feel like it's getting, like, deader and deader. <laughs> It turns out the clanking was a tiny crossbow with a dart. And, <laughs> you know, it's funny, but I also literally did see someone throw a dart into someone's head once. So it's, it is scary to imagine an unruly child with that yeah. weapon. <laughs> but there also seems to be like a little bit of projection happening, in my opinion, where they're like, we're going to assign a monitor to work with him one on one. And Amelia is like, you see him as a problem to be gotten rid of, but she's the one threatening to pull him out. But on the other hand, you're like, oh, it's also understandable how the further alienation of someone with behavioral issues might not be the best move. So it's a complicated situation. Yeah, it feels like like everybody doesn't know how to figure him out. But at the same time, like the way that they kept saying, like, the boy, the boy, the boy. That also right, like dehumanizing. That he is so alienated from everybody that's like he doesn't know how to work this all out. You know what I mean? But yeah. and that no one else does either, you know? The bluntness of children also embarrasses Amelia in the supermarket when he tells some random lady his backstory and adds a little wrinkle that his dad died in a car crash that happened on the way to the hospital while Amelia was in labor. And the lady says, well, your mom is very lucky to have you then, isn't she? And there's this great shot where it cuts back to Amelia and her body language is like, fucking doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) That also, thinking about it, like, again, not to keep saying this all the time. So it just gave birth five months ago. I cannot imagine your husband dying in an accident and then you get carried, continue on your way to then go do the craziest thing you'll ever do. Like yeah. oh my God. the trauma, the dual trauma of losing your husband and then having to have your body get like ripped open and give birth, like, and then having no one to do it by your side and figuring out, yeah. God, that is just like absolutely wild. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's funny because I mean, realistically thinking about it, it's like, would she give up the love of her life for this annoying kid? She's only known a few years. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Amelia and Sam join her sister and niece, Claire and Ruby, at the park, where Sam screams about, Mom, Mom, I'm going to smash the monster, while Ruby plays quietly by herself. And Claire is like, by the way, Ruby wants her own birthday party, not a joint one with Sam this year. And Amelia is quick to say that it's fine. But again, she kind of goes further than she needs to. And she's like, we won't even come then. And she just like slaps this rictus grin on her face. And like, you see how this is a crutch (laughs) that she just feels so imposed upon that she's kind of retreating back into herself almost. And obviously there is the idea of uh, the looming fact that she doesn't celebrate on the day of his birthday because of the whole anniversary of the husband dying thing. So you're really feeling, I I am feeling a lot of pity for her at this point. Yeah. I think it's interesting if there is another moment too, where they're like, it's been seven years, like you got to get over this. And then like, there are some moments where I'm like, 
oh, I hate Auntie Claire. Right. She's a bitch. But then other moments of just like, but what what are all the things that have led up to this? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And sure. it does really make you think kind of like, oh, God, what else has happened? But it's interesting that the mom, Amelia, is both like she's surrounded by people, but also so alone. Do you know what I mean? Right. Completely isolated because whether it is Samuel having driven people away or just her, you know, sort of cutting off her nose to spite her face in this way, she is sort of severing those relationships even when people have tried to reach out. Yeah, like the neighbor. Right. Exactly. And they're interrupted by Sam's screams for attention and the ensuing falling off the top of the swing. And it's a very funny shot as it cuts to her in the car, again, just dead-eyed, ignoring his screams in the back. (laughs) Back at home, we get our first look at sort of the the main interior where it is this gray-blue walls looming coolly and dingily over them, the worn wood. I also love that there's some, like, artwork of warm-looking houses just to make sure you never forget what could be. (laughs) And their dog, Bugsy, scratches at the basement door which Amelia looks at oddly, then checks to make sure it's locked, which it is. But we saw earlier that Samuel can reach the key. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> There's a lot of great like infestation imagery in this movie, which I think obviously works with the Babadook. Their dog is named Bugsy. The neighbor is named Mrs. Roach. Obviously, uh. there are literally roaches in the wall. Well, or are there? <laughs> but yeah, just some, some, I like a lot of the naming kind of ties into yeah. it as well, just, just as a fun thing. Again, the gulf between them is immense in the framing as they eat dinner that night. But before bed, they do the checking routine, and he pulls out a new book, The Babadook, which I learned very, very shortly before this recording. That is an anagram for a bad book. Oh, that is very interesting. I didn't know that. Amelia reads the book. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of The Babadook, and it starts to freak her out. But Sam is like, but you said I could choose. Yeah. And so she relents and goes back to it, and then it freaks him out. It's so funny for him to have, like, brought it on himself in that way. (laughs) He just weeps in her lap as she reads a different book. Yeah, that too, that moment where he just was, like, scream crying in her lap. I was like, she's not getting to sleep tonight. (laughs) No, definitely not. I used to nanny a little girl who she wanted to, she would come over to my apartment because we had a, a pool. And she was like, now let's watch Goosebumps. And she was like three. And so we'd start watching Goosebumps on Netflix. And while we're watching it, she would be like, I'm not supposed to watch this. I get night terrors. (laughs) We were like, then let's turn it off. She's like, no, no, no. Let's keep going. Hey, you don't have to deal with it. (laughs) Yeah, it was just like, ugh. She was like, my mom says I'm not supposed to watch this. The G passes over her and her eyes glow green. But she was so, she kept being like, let's watch like the dummy one used to really especially overwhelm her. But she just would like watch it with her eyes, like hands (laughs) over eyes and like kind of like watching it. I was like, we don't need to watch this. (laughs) It's a challenge to herself. I get it. Yeah. (laughs) Eventually Samuel is passed out. He's still grabbing her ear though, which is funny. And she wants to read the Babadook again. The Baba book, even. <laughs> you can't get rid of him after all. It talks about taking off a funny disguise and revealing the monster underneath, but it isn't completely filled in. So she sticks it atop the bureau and heads into the living room to veg out. She's flipping channels, eating candy, and rubbing her jaw where she's got a pain. And what we see are commercials, sex hotlines, and romance movies. She's not got a lot of money, and she's not getting any of the latter two. So she gives up and heads up to bed to masturbate. Unfortunately, she is interrupted by Sam, (laughs) this fucking kid. 
he wakes up and he sees the door of the bureau is now open, which freaks him out again. I don't want anything bad to happen to you, mum, he says, but she's frustrated in more ways than one, and these these frustrations are getting closer to the surface. And I, I love, again, we talked about how it is externalizing these emotions. There are some really cool shots of, like, the shadows in the house, which seem to be following her up the stairs almost, and there are some noises. It's just so well communicated in, in terms of, like, the growing threat. Yeah, I also think that like it's so it was so interesting to me that he kept saying, I don't want anything to happen to you. I'm gonna save you, mom. Right. Which I think that is like it the turn was so like small because he just like is saying so much stuff that you don't think about it. But that it was just kind of like you do realize like, oh, there's threat to him because the book's like you're gonna strangle your son. But <laughs> he recognizes like it's you who needs saving. Exactly. There's a neat time lapse there, too, as we zoom forward to the next day, and she's running late. And, you know, look, the kid may be annoying, but he does provide a convenient excuse for her. (laughs) (laughs) At work, she's running bingo. She's positively exhilarated by this. Maybe in a few days, they'll have a winner. (laughs) (laughs) She starts to goof around a bit. She calls $5 billion just in time for the boss to be watching. Who hasn't been there? (laughs) Robbie offers to cover her shift so she can go spend some time relaxing with the quote-unquote sick Samuel, but she's like, fuck that, and goes to chill at the mall and get some ice cream. Who could blame her, really, I guess? Yeah. And time does slip past again, and she finally checks her phone. She finds 10 missed calls from Claire, who forced Samuel to just sit on the driveway. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, what the fuck? But he was scaring them with talk of the Babadook. And when she arrives, he like angrily throws a firecracker at the ground, which really cracked me up. That was very like real kid thing. They wrote and played Frustrating Child so well. Yeah. Just the moment like, where did you get those fireworks? I was like, you got them for me. <laughs> the brother of that girl who used to really like to watch Goosebumps. He had some, like, anger in him, and he would say really weird stuff. I would just be driving him in the car. Like, he would be like, the war is coming, and I will be ready to fight. Oh, no. One time he told me, he was like, I actually, I like nightmares. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's like, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Oh, my God. Wow. That's terrifying. Yeah, so he, (laughs) and he was about that kid's age. I mean, he was different ages because I watched him for a while, but he would just say things that were like, what, you like nightmares? Or like, what are you talking about? The war is coming and you're ready to fight. Like That's that's (laughs) terrifying. He's a real Samuel. Yeah. (laughs) So he says the Babadook wants to scare her and eat her insides. And I think it's interesting that she tells him here that she's decided he can't have a party with Ruby. No cakes, no presents. And she's framed it as both her choice and also a punishment instead of, like, normal growing up and wanting to be the center of attention at a dang princess party. You know, it felt like ultimately a pretty normal thing for for Ruby to want. And now here is Amelia using it as, like, a cudgel against her son. Yeah, I think that's sometimes the unfortunate thing about parenting is that, like, you're so in the storm (laughs) that, like, a objective bystander is like that wasn't the decision that should have been made (laughs) but but there's been 17 things that happened prior to this so you're not always working with like a level head so some like again happening even like nannying that like a mom would like do something and almost would be like you go lay down i'm going to take (laughs) discipline this time (laughs) because that that punishment isn't fitting that crime (laughs) right Samuel is practicing magic in the basement while she makes what can only be described as gruel. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. But she notices the door becoming ajar after Samuel scares the dog with more firecrackers. And folks, they get your hackles up with Chekhov's ankle-high tripwire. <laughs> She's pissed. She says, don't go down there. Your father's things are down there. And it's sort of removed from time for her. It can't be disturbed because then she'd have to reckon with her emotions. But Samuel says, you don't own him, which is, uh, of course, very interesting. This is a, a traumatic thing for him as well to not have the father. Yeah, I thought that was such a great like line of just like, he's my dad, too. He's not just yours. Right. As it feels like she is viewing him as like, I lost my husband to get my son in some ways, even though it wasn't like one didn't lead to the other kind of thing. Right. It is interesting that she probably does view it like I lost something and now you're here versus like we lost something. Robbie does interrupt, though. He drops off flowers for Amelia and a puzzle for Samuel, who immediately snitches about not being sick. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, things are grim. He screams about hating her. Downstairs, she hurries to repack all of the memories Samuel took out. She's literally trying to repress them back in, and she can't even look at a photo of her and her husband, but she suddenly gets scared by a hanging outfit, and this is the first instance of her sort of seeing the Babadook, and it's interesting that it happens right after all of these memories of the husband have been unpacked. Oh, literally. That's very interesting. Yes. Do you think, in your mind, how what is the age difference between Robbie and Amelia? I would say between... Eight and ten years? Because in some ways, because they make Amelia look so old, it feels like a (laughs) hundred. It feels like Robbie is 20 years old and Amelia is 120. (laughs) It it really feels like he's out of his depth. Like, he, like, shows up with, like, the puzzle and he's like, "This this is good, right? And she's like... Brother, you don't know what the fuck is going on in this house. Get yeah, out of yeah. here, dude. Get out and we're not going to see you again. <laughs> yeah, that's the last time we see it. <laughs> yeah, for a second I was like, oh, this is cute, but you are right. It is just kind of like, I do not have time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be part of this little romance you're trying to start. Exactly. It's dinner time. Turns out the gruel had a secret ingredient, glass. Do you think in the the world, and maybe this is supposed to be like unanswered, because like, the Babadook, because uh, like Samuel's like, the Babadook did that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this is like the mom losing her mind and like whether it's like sabotaging things, but only was it felt like in her soup or are we supposed to believe that like there is a Babadook and it did do this? To me, that actually does feel like a child kind of retreating. Like, I think that he was trying to fight the Babadook. I think that he's like, oh, it's inside of her. So I'm going to send in this glass to, like, combat it. But he believes that the Babadook is pulling tricks. That's true, because he wants to scare her. He did say that as well, that he wanted to to scare her and, and eat up her insides. I, I think it, it is it is a tough one, because it could go either way. You're already on such sort of, like, un, uneven footing that when the way that he says it to me does feel like, oh, oh, I'm looking for an excuse. I'm casting for an excuse. But the fact that you're not sure, I think, is a testament to both the performances and the writing. Yeah, I think in some ways I'm more lean that like she has lost her mind in some ways and is doing Mm -hmm. things that are unreasonable. Sure. Because obviously the Babadook is supposed to be like symbolic of, you know, grief and things like that. But is the Babadook actually doing this or does the Babadook make you do things? Does grief make you do things? Ooh, great point. Great point. I also like too that in this moment, she like completely shuts down. Samuel is like, the Babadook did it, and she has no reaction. (laughs) She's like, Samuel, go watch your DVD, and I'll make something else. 
there was a handful of sh- like shards of yeah. glass in your soup and there's just no reaction like it really it's it's more scary that she is like ice cold in this moment i also love the phrase go watch your dvd <laughs> <laughs> that's what i say every time i get mad now yeah time to go watch my dvd <laughs> It's also such a moment in time that you could tell a kid, go watch your DVD. <laughs> yeah. What is it now? Probably just go watch YouTube. Yeah. Probably go get on. Sh- yeah. Not even. Sh- yeah. They're not watching television. <laughs> she heads up to bed and she finds clothes strewn about and the photo from earlier now disfigured with pen. And this finally gets through to her and she yells at Sam, but he pushes her down and runs for the room with his homemade weapon. I love it cuts to her just sitting there and she's rubbing her head. And as she does, the shadows and the score intensify in Sam's room until there's this big thud. And she runs up to find him under the bed with the bureau having fallen flat. And just to have such a like clear moment of the external expression of her internal angst, like it's it's just such a a great creepy moment. It does make you question like how much impact does the Babadook have in the real world? What is going on? Is it her? Is it a monster? It's just such a great, I, I don't know how far into the movie, but it, it just really feels like we're getting the great questions sort of laid out in front of us. Yeah, plus the shot made me, it was on the, sh- the shot for a long enough where I was like, did he get crushed by the Bureau? <laughs> it looked like that. For sure it looked like that. <laughs> he chants, don't let it in. So she grabs the Babadook again. She takes it with her downstairs to tear it up, and then she bins it, baby. And while she sleeps, there's more shadows and noises and electrical surges, but she covers her eyes with the blanket, and she quickly falls asleep, only to be woken by another complaint from Samuel. Do we have to go to Ruby's party? (laughs) I love, you know, I mentioned that it just so many little things are piling up, and it really helps to make the world feel like you or like you can understand sort of what's driven her sort of to this point and one of my favorite moments is when she gets ruby the repeat doll (laughs) and ruby's just like i have this one already and you're like the for for someone who is like you said working like a wage job she's clearly struggling in her own life to to support her own son and then she goes out and gets a toy for this gift and the unappreciative ruby is like i have this one yeah yeah yeah. also that like brutal that framing of all those like women across from her that are just like above her while she's like sitting and how like pitying they are of her while also literally above her and across the table like there's a, a gulf between them it's really great and all the kids rush off to play but samuel clings to her just making whining noises as she tries to throw him off and she is just so on edge go and play right now and these other ladies yeah they look down on her but they also like roll their eyes at her literally and we hear that amelia had to give up her writing career to pay the bills (laughs) chalk up another crime committed by samuel you know you can see how she might hold that against him as well yeah she says that she used to write some kid stuff i'm curious if you think as like a, a manifestation of her psychology if she wrote the babadook book that's interesting it does I almost wondered that if, yeah, there is some kind of, like, um, schizophrenic break in some ways that she has. It's like like two different versions of the world she's experiencing. Yeah, you know, when when we see her, like, watching the TV, it kind of looks like she's, like, dissociating. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So who knows? 
She finally snaps, though, when one of the ladies is like, ah, yeah, I feel like I have the kids 24-7. I don't even have time to go to the gym anymore. And that is too much for Amelia. (laughs) (laughs) And this is where Claire talks about how it's been seven years, and as soon as someone mentions Oscar, you can't cope. And Amelia says, I have moved on. I don't mention him or talk about him. And you're like... That's not moving on. That's repression. Yeah, that's not healing. (laughs) Yeah. Claire also says, amusingly to me, I can't stand to be around your kid, and neither can you. And then it cuts to Ruby being like, your dad died to get away from you, and your mom doesn't want you. And so everybody is thinking it. (laughs) Especially the moment where it's just like, this kid is not the bad one. (laughs) This kid is a victim. Right, and and he pushes Ruby out of the treehouse, and, and you feel like she deserved it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you cut to the drive home. He is freaking the fuck out in the back seat. He's kicking and screaming, and finally Amelia is like, why can't you just be normal? Yeah. And he looks to the seat between them, and he screams, get out a bunch, and then passes out from fear. The doctor doesn't think there's anything too wrong, but she breaks down asking for some sedatives just so that they can get some sleep. And he extremely reluctantly (laughs) gives her a prescription for a week's worth. (laughs) Why don't people like me, says Samuel. (sighs) It's because of the magic, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, get a different hobby. (laughs) Just kidding. It's a little funny, but it's also sad, obviously. And, you know, magic is still cute at that age. Oh, yeah. But also, I mean, you you know, it, it is sad because you're like, sure... From her perspective, he has been a bit of a terror, but, you know, he's also, he seems pretty smart. He made the backpack catapult. He (laughs) has a a, a certain maturity to him, and he agrees to take the pill and stop talking about the Babadook if they promise to protect each other, which she does, and then he says he loves her, and she just says, me too. Yeah, I don't know. can't even say the words. (laughs) That's not a response to I love you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She falls into bed in the same way that she fell in the nightmare sequence, which is great. Although the score says this one is more relieved. And she's drifting off to a good night's sleep for the first time in weeks. She doesn't get up till 11. She goes in there to find Samuel still sleeping too, and she just leaves him alone. There's a knock at the door and nobody there, but it repeats and she looks down to see the book has shown up again, repaired. What an incredible scene as the tense-ass score is going as she explores the new pages that say, the more you deny it, the stronger I get. And then the pop-ups, you know, show the Babadook as a shadow cast from the mom growing under her skin. And another is her like snapping the dog's neck. And then another is her cutting her own throat. And it's just fantastic how these animate kind of like jerky and manically and the blood pouring from her neck with the sharp color contrast is shocking. It's just a really great scene. Yeah, definitely. They make it realistically enough that like, oh, this is how this book is created. There's such a texture to that book, too. It feels like those pages are so thick. Yes. It's very interesting. She takes it outside to throw the book on the bobby. (laughs) (laughs) And she sees Samuel watching reproachfully. And she also gets a phone call from Claire, who's like, I can't help you with what you think is a stalker. Ruby's nose is broken. So feeling very alone. The call is creepy and and it does Babadook noises. So she goes to the police who are pissed that she burned the evidence. And while the desk officer frowns, she notices hanging in the background, friggin' Babadook outfit with giant ass claw gloves sticking out. (laughs) The cops are doing it. (laughs) 
She pretty much runs out of there saying, don't worry about it since they weren't taking her seriously anyway. This moment is very Rosemary's baby. Really feels like she's throwing back to, to the things that influenced her. And it's a pretty thematically important scene here when Amelia returns home. Because Samuel is with the neighbor, who apparently has Parkinson's, and that's why she shakes like that, Samuel says. And Amelia rebukes him, saying, you don't have to say every thought that crosses your mind. But the neighbor is like, it's okay. He was curious, so we talked about it. And, you know, Amelia kind of snaps at her about this. But you can see sort of, you know, complications from Parkinson's are literally the 14th leading cause of death in the U.S. But this woman, her neighbor, Mrs. Roach, has sort of accepted it. She can talk about it. She she can move on from this this thing that's impacting her. Unlike Amelia, who is so clearly still in agony that everyone around her knows, like, you cannot even talk about her husband, which, I mean, it's a huge part of her life, and she is struggling. And if you can't even, like, talk about why you're struggling, how can you begin to move on? Yeah, was that the scene, too, that was like, oh, Oscar would talk that way. Oscar was that blunt kind of thing. Exactly, Which I thought was interesting, too, just like, oh, this son got traits from the father, which I... Again, too, of like he doesn't belong to you, like he's part of me. And I wonder how much even that son being similar to her husband made things harder for her. Sure, painful, no doubt. The memory of him yeah. constantly being brought up. But even Bugsy the dog is running away from her at this point, and the kitchen is covered in roaches emerging from a gap in the wallpaper that was covering a hole. This scene, man, it really like, like captured the feeling of picking a scab. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're like, oh, I know I shouldn't do this, but it feels good. And, and this um, eruption of cockroaches happens. So she's scrubbing when the Australian Child Protective Services arrives. And Samuel is like, mom is drugging me. <laughs> <laughs> I also love those two protection people. People who look like they're cartoons. Right. <laughs> like, those two actors, like, especially that woman, looked like she was, like, in a Tim Burton film. Like, she had, like, a yeah. very pointy face. It fits into the sort of surreality of yeah. the movie that it's established. It's, it's really great stuff. And Amelia does a bad job of explaining this. And then she's like, sorry about the mess. I was cleaning up a cockroach infestation from the hole in the wall. And they all look, no hole. And so she's like, I meant a hole in the wall paper. (laughs) (laughs) They serve her some papers and they say they'll be back in a week, just as Samuel is feeling the nausea side effect. And he does the funny kid thing of standing there weird and being like, Mom, I think I'm going to vomit. Oh, gosh. Just go to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Another time lapse. Amelia sees the Babadook in the shadows of the neighbor's house, but it vanishes. She also reads a bedtime story, but when she looks over at the Babadook corner, she sees herself in the mirror, and you're like, hmm, (laughs) pointed. (laughs) The wind howls through the house. It sounds like a monster as the camera and her thoughts linger on the door to the basement. And it's it's scary when the door opens up again after you just saw her let in the dog, and suddenly... The Babadook scurries in the room. That damn Babadook. (laughs) That damn Babadook. And she covers her head with the blanket, which I, again, thought was like a very childlike move, which is interesting. When she did that, I was like, "Mm -mm, keep your eyes on the Babadook. (laughs) (laughs) You don't know how that Babadook's moving when you're under the covers. And he he skitters up to the ceiling when she peeks out again, and, and he jumps down her throat. And she drags the whole gang downstairs, and the pain in her jaw is back as she watches TV, and her eyes close for just a moment, 
but it turns to a Millie's style movie with the Babadook and some other horror imagery, and suddenly it's morning. She calls out of work again, but they're pissed about how much time she's taking off, and they give away the rest of her shifts, so she crawls into bed, but there's Samuel, who needs something to eat, apparently, uh, and there's nothing in the fridge. This is so tough. This poor, Meaty. Ch- this poor child being <laughs> so reasonable. And was she- yes. And then you're also like, oh yeah, she probably threw away everything in the fridge with that cockroach thing. It's just like, yeah. him just being like, I'm supposed to eat with my medicine. Yeah. Yeah, and her just being like, why don't you go eat shit? Ugh. It's just like, ugh. Brutal. And and this, this eat shit line sends him running from the room. <laughs> and she does apologize, but not immediately. And she tries to buy his affection back with ice cream for breakfast. Yeah, just like giving her him all this ice cream. And I'm sure he's just like, what's in this ice cream? <laughs> yeah. They go out to breakfast and, and they're in a car crash on the way back because she's just driving them around to avoid going home. And uh, there's some possibly imagined roaches covering her in her lap, and the Babadook gives her a start in the mirror. And the guy that she crashes into, so funny, what an asshole this guy is about it. (laughs) (laughs) I love when people ask, like, why did you, like, crash in my car? Just like, accident. (laughs) What's what's ever the reason? Exactly. But she drives off. She just ignores this guy and drives off, which is really funny. And when they get home, she ignores the neighbor, too. She just wants to sit in the tub quietly oh, in her clothes. God, that was so creepy, too. I was like, it's so warm in here. Oh, also, man. picking him up and putting him in the tub. Ah. <laughs> Freaky. And he's like, I don't want you to go away. And she says, she's not going anywhere. But I'll be honest, sounds more like a threat in the moment. <laughs> Samuel doesn't think they should stay there anymore, and she yells at him again when he touches the violin she's cuddling. So he curls up in the chair across the room to watch over her while she sleeps fitfully. I'm curious, do you think that's Oscar's violin or just like an idiosyncrasy because she's exhausted? I think it's probably Oscar's. Wasn't it in the basement, maybe? I missed that. And so uh, I was like, oh, could go either way for me. (laughs) When she's feeling so isolated, the idea of her just like needing to like cuddle something, anything, and have some kind of physical presence. (laughs) Yeah, definitely a weird thing to cuddle, but uh, she's also losing her mind. Yeah. (laughs) There's a noise that wakes her with a start, and Samuel is gone. And she follows the whispers downstairs and finds Samuel calling the neighbors to ask if they could stay there. And Amelia freaks out, but not until after she plays it cool for Mrs. Roach, which was also very freaky. (laughs) She cuts the phone line. She gestures at Samuel with the knife before going around and shutting every entrance into the house. Samuel, very smartly, takes the opportunity to stash his weapons in his room. (laughs) (laughs) I am the parent and you are the child. So take the pill, she says. And she checks his mouth. And she goes back downstairs to watch TV. This time it's a Fleischer-style cartoon with a werewolf. Nothing thematic about changing into a monster, probably. (laughs) (laughs) She looks over and she hallucinates a dead Samuel. And it turns into him being freaked out because she's actually standing over him holding a knife. But I say actually... I mean, that's what the movie is showing. Again, who knows how actually, actually is. Yeah, it definitely feels like we're now in a place of just like, what is dreamlike and what is real? Exactly. And she tries to calm herself in the chair, and the dog comes by, which she holds for a moment, but it wriggles loose and barks at her, and she cries. She's lonely. She's lost. She maniacally gives Samuel some ice cream, but she doesn't eat any of the bowl that she made for herself since her jaw is in agony. And suddenly it's back to TV, 
I really like this moment as well because it's kind of hard to tell what time it is and everything. You know, we talked about how there are occasionally these like interjections of, oh, it's been two days or whatever, but it's a dark house. She's talked about ice cream for breakfast. She has no job anymore. He has no school. It really kind of makes you feel that sleepy loopiness. Like it's kind of punch drunk in the way that the movie feels. Yeah, definitely. But the channels basically all relate to what's happening. There are infomercials, which are pressuring everybody to be perfect. The Phantom of the Opera is more hidden ugliness. There's rotting carcasses being eaten by ants. An exposed blender blade. But she stops on a news story about a woman who stabbed her child on his seventh birthday and hid him in the basement before being killed by the police. And very scarily, this is probably the scariest moment of the movie for me, when she sees herself like leering out of the window yeah. on, the, on the video. Terrifying. The lights go out, and behind her, with his eyes closed, Samuel appears, saying, Wake up, Mommy. And she says, But you're the one who's asleep, sweetheart. And he turns and walks towards the open basement, and truly, you're just like, I have no idea what's real right now. (laughs) They do such a great job of making you unsure. Yeah. She tries to stop him, but follows, and it's more lit down there than upstairs, which I think think is funny. (laughs) And, And she's greeted by her husband. I thought you were dead, she says. And they smooch, and he says, we can be together, just bring me the boy. Ugh. And the lights dim, and he, she backs up in fear and disbelief as his voice distorts. Yeah. And the lights pulse again, and she runs upstairs, and the buzzing sound is so intense that she turns around and sees the Babadook's shadow approaches. So she barricades herself in the room, and a hat falls down the chimney, and soon the Babadook follows as she crawls, weeping for the door. Truly, like, an agonizing scene. Yeah. Oh, the fact that Babadook's getting in through uh, fireplaces. Santa style. <laughs> but he always brings his hat. <laughs> he sends that down first just to test. It surges through her body despite her disbelief in it, and suddenly we're back watching TV with her. Baba's Black Sabbath on the screen as she twitches, and the movie jerks a little bit in the edit as well, which I thought was a really cool addition to real. Yeah. Like, suddenly there's it's breaking that fourth wall in a way. That's uh, really cool. The pallid face on the screen kind of looks like her as she's all disheveled and breathing heavy and like kind of she's really feeling it (laughs) at this point. And Bugsy barks one too many times. So she turns off the TV, chases him down and snaps the neck. And you're just like, goodness, freaking gracious. Like this is brutal. And and they like don't show the actual snapping, but they show enough to really make you feel this. Yeah, that was when you're especially just kind of like. Oh, fuck. (laughs) Yeah. And she reaches into her mouth and she rips out the tooth that's been bothering her and just tosses it on the floor. Things are accelerating. (laughs) Things have gotten worse. Yes. (laughs) She spies Samuel watching her from the stairs and she chases him, attempting to lure him out from behind the locked door with talk of getting Bugsy some help and then getting aggressive. Let me in. Let me in. Just like the Babadook was screaming. Yeah. There you go. Who's the Babadook? Who's, who's the bad book? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> she does this kind of supernatural seeming leap up to like grab the trim. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she kicks down the door. Very big bad wolf, of course, as well, which she was reading him earlier, the, the Red Riding Hood. And this poor kid pisses himself in terror as she, like, floats over to him. The way that she walks, again, feels very dreamlike. And she says, I wish it was you, not him, that died. And so many times I've wanted to smash your head against a brick wall. Which, for my money, 
Not something you want to hear from your mom. Yeah, to yeah, be yeah. Sure. I'm sure. Top, top five. I think too that kid's probably like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, shit! You're mom. saying it out loud now, but I felt it. <laughs> the chase ensues. Samuel's using all the tricks at his disposal: firecracker distraction, dart in the arm, catapult something at her noggin. <laughs> yeah, he's really home aloneing it now. <laughs> yeah. A cutout of Michael Jordan yeah. swings through the kitchen. <laughs> He hides in a closet and it's great. You can actually see him in the corner of the screen when the camera is just like close up on her glowering, which I did not get the first time because I was like, when I was rewatching this movie, I was like, oh, like you see him jump out from the shadows kind of as she starts actually going down the stairs. And so I rewound to see if you could see him in those shadows. But I like went too far back and just like in the corner, you see like his little face poking out and you're like, oh, shit, you like really see him in there. <laughs> just great, great filmmaking. And her chase is interrupted by a knock at the door. And so she does go down. It's Mrs. Roach, and she's just checking in. She says, I know this time of year is hard for you, and I love you both. And so Amelia returns to the kitchen, and she apologizes to Samuel. She says she hasn't been good since his dad died, and she's sick. Well, we're going to go stay at Mrs. Roach, and but this is this is just to get close to him. And she starts talking about how she wants him to meet his dad, and it's beautiful there, and her hands start to creep for his neck, Ugh. and you're like, oh my fucking god, yeah. is this gonna do it? But he stabs her leg with a big yell, and then he runs away screaming, sorry mommy, which was really uh, funny to me. Yeah, so, so, yeah, very, very real. And again, too, of just like, yeah. he's like, look, I'm not trying to kill, I just gotta like, get my mom back. Sorry mommy. <laughs> She chases him down the stairs to the basement, hitting the aforementioned tripwire. She smashes her face on the wall opposite them, staggers down the stairs before he hits her knees, and she finally passes out. And when she wakes up, she's tied to the floor with Samuel watching. I'm not leaving you, Mom. We said we'd protect each other. And she screams and cries and pants. And Sam says, I know the Babadook won't let you love me, but I love you. You fully switched onto the kid's side at this yeah. point it's you're really like oh this poor kid is just trying to make the best of a shit lot and his maturity in all of this beyond his years <laughs> she gets an arm loose and she raises him up by the neck and she's wild-eyed as hell but he just strokes her face instead of fighting and this kind of shakes something loose in her and she spasms before rolling over and puking up a black goo then collapsing and he shakes her back to life with a gasp, and they limp towards the stairs. They've looked better for sure. <laughs> yeah. But he, he stops suddenly, and she asks what's wrong, and he says, you can't get rid of the Babadook, and suddenly he's yanked up the stairs by an invisible force and thrown across the wall as she pursues. She demands to know what the Babadook wants, and one of my favorite shots in the movie is right here where she like walks forward towards its shadowy lair and she steps off screen, but the camera just stays there framing her shadow on the wall and covering Samuel. Oh, man, just Very really cool. encapsulates the movie. And out of the shadow, instead of the Babadook, emerges her husband Oscar again. And he says the last thing he said to her from in the car. And she relives the death, or maybe imagines it worse even, with his head getting cut in half and then dragged back. And the Babadook laughs, and she's angry now, and she says, You are nothing. And so Samuel hugs her legs, and she repeats it as the Babadook gets larger. This is my house. If you touch my son again, I will fucking kill you. <laughs> And she screams primally. She hugs Samuel back. Samuel in the breaking mirror as the Babadook ret retreats and then collapses, wheezing. 
and she approaches it, but it doesn't hurt her. It just screams in her face and then rushes downstairs, which she locks the door to, and they fade out on her hugging Sam. And when we fade back in, he's greeting her with Mrs. Roach. Everybody seems happy, and importantly, they're going to celebrate Sam's birthday. Obviously a huge step, as discussed, with the CPS team, who are back to check in. So everything seems to be going well, which is great, but she's gardening and suddenly they're collecting worms in this bowl. Well, even that, that shot too, where it's like, it feels very Simpsons when they used to always, the joke of there's things in the floorboards kind of thing, but like yes. the dog skeleton and panning up kind of thing. It's like, Jesus. So exactly. you're like, okay, so this happened. <laughs> dog is dead. Dog is dead for sure. But she brings these worms downstairs. The door has many more locks, <laughs> deadbolts, in fact. And they're all at the top of the frame so that Sam can't reach. And he says, am I ever going to see it? She responds, one day when you're bigger. And obviously, we can interpret this as when it's not such a burden to put on the child. They can talk about her grief. But in the meantime, she still has to acknowledge it, give it some release, feed it some worms. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this is... Um, it's really great when she goes down there. I think if this had just turned into a normal movie where she beat back the um, the Babadook and it died or whatever, and, and suddenly they were just a perfect family, it kind of would cheapen everything that they had gone through. Yeah, that makes me think, too, about how, like, I feel like I've been told that this, like, the Babadook is grief. But in some ways, I think in a lot of ways, it could also be, like, depression, and I think that a lot of people who are like clinically depressed, it's like you don't beat depression. You just work right. every day to fight it back. And that some days it's bigger. And even when this is like, how was it today? It's like, oh, it wasn't so big today. Yeah, quiet. But yeah. it does feel that it it does feel kind of like, oh, she's fighting back that depression, that grief every single day, but she can't defeat it. And like you said, it would cheapen if it was just like, and she just defeated depression. <laughs> right. Wow. Never to be seen again. <laughs> And she got a great job and they were rich. Yeah, and- <laughs> like that's not realistic of what you know this kind of pain is. Right. And even to that end, she has gotten her job back at the like assisted living. Like that's as as much as it gets. Yeah, it's not a fairy tale. It's not like beating this made everything okay, you know? Yep. But he does do a magic trick where he turns a quarter into a dove, yeah, what famously the hell? a sign of peace. <laughs> Very impressive. Oh, yeah. They hug. Happy birthday, sweetheart. Close up on her pained smile, because obviously it is still the anniversary of the death, and you can understand the pain, but it seems to have certainly been an improvement in their relationship, and then boom, credits. And also for the credits, we get some great pop-up book art, which is always nice to get a little something to go home on. (laughs) (laughs) And now we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why it's not just a good horror movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. (laughs) And I'm going to let you start. Yeah, I think that to me, a realistic issue or problem is the scariest thing. When I was younger and watched Jurassic Park for the first time, I remember getting scared, but kind of being like, oh, this can't happen. And if this can't happen, then what's the point of being scared of it? I think the Babadook does a really good job of, like we said at the beginning, of like its own specific kind of scariness <laughs> of the, yeah. the drawl of, you know, being a working class single mother. But the idea of battling, whether it's grief or depression or anxiety or any kind of like mental-esque illness kind of thing, while trying to be a, a mother and failing at that, to me, it is like that psychological horror is so real and something we all could face. And to me, that makes it 
the scariest type of horror. And I think that, like we've said for all the reasons, I think it's just a really wonderfully made film with all the textures and themes without being overdone. And the script is really good. I think a lot of horror movies, you're like, this is scary and I'll excuse the script kind of thing. Yeah. But I think this had a very wonderful script that really made me you know, think, and it could have just been a, a drama, but it had those horror-like aspects. Yeah, I totally agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is a perfect encapsulation of what these kind of movies can accomplish as a metaphor. You know, it is an authentic story told in a way that is both realistic and fantastical. You're able to interpret the emotional truth while seeing it sort of told through the more fantastical monster story or whatever. And to me, that is just, it's so great. It, it tells this fantastic story. That, and and even just at the very end, when we talked about how it doesn't cheapen the rest of the movie. I think the idea that now this arc just means that they get to build a relationship that they, they don't have a perfect relationship yet. You can see it in her face, but they can build it not on what the son represents in terms of loss, but base it on love and, and on what they can do for each other in terms of support. They both went through this terrible thing and, and no one else, none the neighbor, Robbie, none of them are going to know what it's like, but the two of them have this bond and it, it sort of crystallizes it in a way that I, I think is, is really special. The performances are incredible. Yeah. The first time I saw this movie, I truly was like, that is the most annoying child in the world. <laughs> He is so great in it, and he does such a great job of sort of putting you on her side and then switching it, like we talked about, becoming a more innocent child, and and we sort of see through the veil, and, and Essie is just fantastic. We've talked about even just the physical performance, the, the facial expressions that she's doing. It's incredible. The movie is fantastic. Jennifer Kent kills it in writing and direction. It is a throwback to these great gothic movies while also being its own modern thing. It's just the best damn horror movie ever made. And what? A, and I could say Babadook all day. <laughs> Hell yes. Hell yes. Great name. It's a lot of fun to say. And folks, you gotta see it. <laughs> uh, Mary, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This was super fun. Please uh, tell the people where they can find you, anything you're working on or want to direct them towards, social media, all that jazz. Uh, sure. I am at Mary Sasson on all social media. I, I got it. I, I like play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, just I think, you know, anything I'm doing, I'll be promoting on there. Or just, you know, check out my daily musings, you know. <laughs> great follow and as far as my plugs you can find me at little horror phl on twitter that username applies pretty much everywhere including instagram and letterboxd but also especially the patreon we've done all kinds of great bonus episodes over there things that aren't necessarily the best horror movie ever made but still merit discussion we've talked about video games like resident evil 2 doki doki literature club we've talked about 13 best animated horror shorts from 1929 to 1953 wow. and it, you know what if you like just the regular episodes, bonuses of those too. Mike Mitchell came back to talk about The Blob 88. Uh, Michael Swaim from Cracked came on to talk about Synecdoche, New York as a horror movie. So all kinds of really great stuff that you can find over there. And if you, it's, I mean, it's cheap, but if you really don't want to pay any money, you could at least rate and review the show, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Throw us a bone. Yeah, seriously. All right, that's it for me. Thanks, everyone. And thanks again, Mary. Thank you so much. Bye.